So we're going to look at the letter to the Galatians. The Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians. It's really his earliest letter that we have. It's also his angriest letter. And as I've pointed out in previous weeks, that's actually a good thing for us who live now in the 21st century. Because if you wonder what Christianity is about, if you're trying to figure it out, whether you're raised in church or not, this is a great letter for you to figure out what really is the heart of Christianity, the heart of what Christians call the gospel, the good news. Because this is one of the earliest letters that we have. It's one of the earliest records we have of what the early church was all about and what they considered important. And the fact that Paul is so angry in this letter gives you a clue as to what's ultimately important. As you know, if you get somebody and they get really angry at you, you've probably encroached on something that really matters to them. Anger is always a way for you to figure out what's ultimately important. So we have this early angry letter It helps you understand what Christianity is really about and what's worth fighting for. And it is interesting. It's actually a very important letter in the spread of Christianity as well. And that's ironic because Paul did not intend to go to this area and preach the gospel to these Galatian people. As we'll read later in the letter, it was because of an illness that he preached the gospel to them. He got waylaid there. He was on his way passing through, got sick, and got stuck there. And while he was there, he preached the gospel to them. Actually, that's kind of how I first heard the gospel. Going backstage after a performance of a play, my sister and other people in our little youth group went back there, and they all were interested in hearing about the gospel. I was just hanging out because we all rode together, right? And uh, one of the guys came up to me and said, do you want to hear about the gospel? And I was like, well, not really. I'm just here with my sister and her friends. And they were all crying and went backstage to talk to you all, and we're just hanging out. And they said, well, you might as well hear it since you're sitting here anyway. And I didn't have a good reason uh, to resist that. And that's how I kind of first heard the gospel. Sometimes God works that way, right? And that's how it was with these Galatians. But then Paul uh, had left. But here's the interesting thing. This letter that wasn't necessarily, or these people that weren't even necessarily the people that Paul felt called to go to, this letter, this controversy that he has to write this letter about, ends up being supremely important for the spread of Christianity beyond just people who are Jewish. But it's actually quite a controversial move in the early church to take the gospel to people who aren't Jewish. But the fact is, the history of Christianity is really a fascinating one and actually rather unique among world religions. Because while a lot of people might think that Christianity is kind of a European or even an American Western religion, the fact is sort of the power center of Christianity has shifted a number of times in the last 2,000 years. It began in Israel and then it moved to the whole of the Middle East. Eventually it moved to Africa for, one, for, for a season, North Africa was really the center of the Christian world in this planet. And then it moved to Asia. As a matter of fact, there's a guy, um, Philip Jenkins. I posted this on the REF group, so you can go get this quote if you want. His book, The Lost History of Christianity by Philip Jenkins. He's an esteemed history professor there at Penn State. He says this. 
In modern times, we're accustomed to thinking of Christianity as traditionally based in Europe and North America, but the particular shape of Christianity with which we are familiar is a radical departure from what it was for well over a millennium. Sorry, from what it was. For well over a millennium, the historical norm, another earlier global Christianity once existed. For most of history, listen to this, for most of its history, Christianity was a tri-continental religion with powerful representation in Europe, Asia, and Africa. And this was true into the 14th century. Even as late as the 14th century, Christianity was powerful on three continents. Christianity became predominantly European, he says, because this con- not because this continent had any obvious affinity for the Christian faith, but by default, Europe was the continent where it was not destroyed. And his book actually is, uh, the subtitle is The Thousand Year Golden Age of the Church in the Middle East, Africa, and Asia, and How It Died. It's a fascinating book and will probably open you up to a world that you didn't know existed. But here's what I want you to see. The fact that Christianity could be Asian, African, and European all at the same time with different languages, different cultural expressions, the fact of that has a lot to do with the letter to the Galatians. It does. The reason that this was able to happen was because of what's going on here in Galatians as well as Acts chapter 15. And now, to understand Galatians, you have to know a little bit about the early church. And actually tonight, that's what we're going to talk about, a little bit about the early church, because Paul tells us a story in the section that we're going to look at tonight. But he tells us a story because he's responding to some charges. And to understand what he's responding to, you have to understand a little bit about the early church. And discover, we need to discover who the Judaizers were and where they came from. You ever heard that phrase? Maybe if you've been raised around church, you've heard that phrase, the Judaizers. It seems, you know, that there were kind of two groups of Jewish Christians In the early, very first early part of Christianity, the Christians were mostly Jewish. Except there were two different kinds of Jewish Christians in the early church. Some who Judaism was their culture, they were thankful for it, but they were Christian. And then there were others who who weren't just Jewish culturally, but they thought that Judaism and the associated cultural trappings were the superior way to live. And these are the people we call the Judaizers, the people who would say that it's not just enough to sort of respect your culture and sort of have your Christian faith become incarnate in that culture. No, they would say all people of all cultures and all races need to become Jewish. And where this particularly became a conflict was over the issue of circumcision, because the Jews circumcised their male children, and other people didn't. And the Judaizer said, if you are going to become a Christian, you need to also first become Jewish and then Christian, and that means you need to adopt Jewish cultural practices like circumcision and eating foods that Jews eat and not eating food that Jews don't eat. And to make it more complicated, as soon as the Apostle Paul began to preach to the Gentiles and tell them, you don't need to be circumcised and you don't need to adopt Jewish culture to be pleasing to God, well, then the Judaizers went nuts. 
See, as long as there wasn't anybody telling Gentiles you don't need to become Jewish, it was fine. You could be in the same church with people that thought Judaism was just a great way to be and people that thought it was the best way to be and the only way that you should be because all of them were culturally Jewish. But as soon as Gentiles who weren't Jewish came into the church, then there was conflict. And actually what these people began to do is they would follow Paul around and after he would preach the gospel and then he would leave, they would come in after and say, you know, this guy, Paul, he kind of didn't really teach you the right things. He kind of got the gospel garbled and um, he didn't teach you what's right. He's not teaching you the full gospel. We know we're from the other apostles in Jerusalem, Peter and James, the pillars, as they're called actually later in Galatians. We know and we know this guy, Paul has not got it right. He got it from them, and he got it garbled. So we're here to fix it. And that plagued Paul everywhere he went. He deals with this issue in virtually every letter that he writes, but he deals with it most clearly here in Galatians. And how does he deal with it? How does he deal with it? Well, he tells a story. He tells a story, and that's what we're going to look at. If you have a Bible, turn to Galatians chapter 1. We will start reading at verse 11, and we're going to read a good bit into chapter 2 as well, because the story, it's hard to break it up in the middle. You there? You ready? Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, this is God's word. Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, and he was notorious. He was actually on his way to kill Christians on the road to Damascus when he was converted, and everybody in the first century knew that. He says, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, the Jews. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. That's Peter. It's another name for Peter. And remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord, that means Jesus' brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So they heard about him, but he didn't even see him, didn't know him. And they glorified God because of me. Then, after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, that was his partner in the gospel, taking Titus along with me, one of his protégés. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, 
the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek and not Jewish. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. That means they added nothing to my gospel. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, to the non-Jewish, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived, by the, or sorry, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And there's a little more to the story, which I'll bring in as I talk about this and that we will focus on next week. But let's pray, and then we'll unpack the story and the significance of it for us tonight. Lord, we do thank you. We thank you that origins matter, and we thank you that Paul tells us this story, a story of your grace to one who was not looking for it and did not deserve it. And I pray, Lord, that you would craft our story such that we would glory in your grace as well. We pray that you would even use the foolishness of preaching to draw us to a greater dependence on you and your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's a little, it's a little complicated. Granted, for me to read that, Paul, when he's telling this story, keeps making sort of these parenthetical, parenthetical asides. It's a little hard to track. So we're going to go through this and talk about what he's saying here and why it matters. Now, again, you know, the people, these false teachers, these Judaizers were teaching two primary things about Paul. They were saying that he got his gospel from the other apostles, but he garbled it. In particular, they would say he garbled it by leaving things out. And we're here to put that stuff back in. Yes, you need to be saved by grace. Paul's right about that. But you also need to be circumcised and become Jewish culturally for God to really love you. So what Paul said, that was fine, but it just wasn't the full gospel. And you might think, well, people don't still say that. People say that kind of stuff all the time. Oh, you know, I know you're a Christian, but you're not spirit baptized and you haven't spoken tongues, so you're not really a full Christian. I could name many, many things where people think that they need to add something or they try to make different tiers of Christians. The same kind of stuff happens. Some of them are less important. Some of them matter. But what really matters is are we adding anything to the gospel? So Paul is defending himself against that charge that he's garbled the gospel. And they're also saying, you know, he takes all these trips up to Jerusalem. Well, that was him getting the gospel from these people. See, um, the Judaizers were very effective. They were very effective. These Galatians had loved Paul. When we get to chapter 4, you're going to find that he said, you 
when, when the gospel first came to you, you would have torn out your eyes and given it to me. You treated me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ himself. And then he says, have I now become your enemy because I've spoken the truth to you? When the Paul writes this letter, these people he's writing to are absolutely opposed to him. These people that had dearly loved him now hate him because they feel like he's lied to them and he told them a false gospel. You don't quite get it yet in here in what I just read, but there is a lot of conflict and broken relationship behind this letter. So this is serious stuff, especially if it's true that what the Judaizers were teaching them was a false gospel. If it's not a gospel at all, and now they think that Paul is the one who's wrong, it really matters. And that's why it really matters who's telling the truth. And so Paul has to set the record straight. Now I said the Judaizers were effective, basically two reasons that they were effective. One is what we're gonna find next week. Peter did, even though he agreed with Paul that the gospel was the gospel, there was a situation where he began to live contrary to the gospel. There was a point at which he was eating with Gentiles. That was a big deal because the Jews, you see, thought that the Gentiles who didn't obey all the laws about being clean before God, that those people, if you ate with them, then you yourself would become unclean in God's eyes. So it was a big deal when these Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, said, we don't care about that anymore. You Gentiles are our brethren in Christ, and we're going to eat with you together at the same table. And so the early church, they did that, and Peter was doing that. And then some Jewish Judaizing people showed up, and he shrank back. He was such a people pleaser. He shrank back, and he refused to eat with Gentiles anymore. And that allowed the Judaizers to say, aha, Look, even Peter knows that you can't eat with Gentiles if they're not following God's law. So that was one of the reasons that the Judaizers were effective. Peter's hypocrisy. And, and we'll get to that. That actually is in the next verses that I didn't read because it's a whole topic in itself. The other reason they were effective is that Paul did actually go to Jerusalem two times. So when they were going around saying, well, Paul, you know, he went up to Jerusalem. Why do you think he went to Jerusalem? Well, he went to Jerusalem so he could learn the gospel. And Paul did go to Jerusalem, but not for the reason that they thought. So he has to set the record straight. Does that make sense? All right, so now let's look at this. We're going to go through verse by verse and, and kind of get through this. So here's the first thing that Paul says about his, to set the record straight. He says, first, only divine revelation could explain my conversion. He says, first, you have to understand that I wasn't looking to be converted. I was completely satisfied in my practicing of Judaism. I was so zealous, I was out to kill the Christians because I thought they were distorting and warping what God had said. I thought they were distorting and warping what God had said, and I was quite zealous to deal with that because I loved God so much. And this is what he talks about here. Look, you guys know, I was not looking to be converted. I was going down the road to Damascus and something grabbed a hold of me, knocked me down, blinded me. I heard a voice saying, 
Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Heard the voice of Jesus himself speaking to him. It was dramatic conversion. And everybody knew the story. So Paul says, look, I didn't get brought into this Christianity thing by anybody in Jerusalem. I didn't want to have anything to do with them. I hated them with a holy passion. I was wanting to kill Christians. you got to remember that. Does it seem likely that the people that I hated were the ones that I went to to be discipled? No, I wasn't there. I wasn't doing that. I didn't get it from them. I wasn't discipled by any man, he says. And I love the way he describes this. Verse 15, listen to how he describes his conversion. When he, that means when God, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And then he goes on, I did not immediately consult. So the way he says it, God is the actor in this story, isn't he? He's not saying, he does not say, you know, when I ask Jesus into my heart, you'll never find that language in the Bible, by the way, ever, anywhere. Now, that doesn't mean if that's how you came to faith that I'm saying it's null and void, didn't work. I'm just saying those words don't describe what actually really happened. This is what really happens. God changes people. This is what grace is. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians chapter 2, says... We were dead in our sins and trespasses. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. It is by grace that you've been saved. If you had asked Paul, what is grace? In Ephesians 2, he defines it. Grace is God making dead people alive. And Paul says, that's my story. And what's really interesting here, when he says, he who had set me apart before I was born... Do you know what the word Pharisee means? It means the set-apart ones. It's a wordplay here. Paul was a Pharisee, one of those extra holy people. Now, when you read the Bible, you see the Pharisees as the bad guys because you've been around Christian teaching enough that you've heard that the Pharisees are the bad guys. They're always fighting with Jesus, so they must be the bad guys, right? But in the first century, everybody thought the Pharisees were the good guys, Because the Pharisees were the ones who opposed the Roman occupation of Israel. And the Pharisees were the ones who opposed the Jewish king who was compromising with the Romans. At the time of Jesus, King Herod, Jewish king, completely sold out to the Romans. He was their lapdog. And the Pharisees were the ones who had the courage to stand up against it and say, we can't compromise. God wants us to be pure. God wants us to be set apart from these compromised liberals who don't understand the truth of God. And Paul was one of them. But what's fascinating is when he describes his conversion, he says the setting apart that matters is not the setting apart that I did as a Pharisee, setting myself apart from other people. The setting apart that matters is the setting apart that God did. In setting me apart to be called by his grace. And one of the things that that shows us is that Paul's understanding of how you relate to God was completely turned upside down. 
Man's wisdom says, set yourself apart for God and he'll notice you. Learn to be a self-promoter. If you're a music business major, you learn this, right? No one's going to notice you if you don't stick out. But the gospel is that God takes notice of us apart from what we do. You know? There's this amazing, uh, well, I, I wish I had time to tell you this story about a debtor to mercy alone. I'll tell it to you another time. But the last thing I want to say about, about this point is that the gospel, he says, is a revelation. It's not something we discover or invent. The religions that mankind invent always end up giving glory to man rather than God. But when Paul describes what happened to him, God is the one who gets all the verbs. It's pretty interesting. God gets all the verbs, not man. Second thing he says, after my conversion, I didn't go to Jerusalem right away. I went to Arabia and I went to Damascus in Syria. What does that mean? That means for three years I was preaching the gospel before I ever met any of the apostles. When I got converted, I went out and started preaching the gospel. I didn't go study at the feet of the apostles. And then he says, I did go to Jerusalem three years later, but only briefly. He said, I did meet Peter. It was in private. Oh, yeah, I met James, too. But I didn't go there and consult with these guys. I'm not somebody who keeps checking in with them. If, you, if it's being represented that way, it's not true. And then he says, 14 years later, I went to Jerusalem again. Why does he go back to Jerusalem 14 years later? So that he can make sure. Look at the way he says this in chapter 2, verse 2. He said, I wanted to make sure that the gospel I proclaim among the Gentiles was, was, was the same that they're preaching. In order, he says, to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, this is important to understand what he's saying here and what he's not saying here. Because you might read this and say, oh, wait, 14 years later, he's wondering, maybe I've got it wrong. I better go check with the, with the big guys in Jerusalem. That's not what he's saying. When Paul says, run my race in vain, when he uses that language in his letters, what he refers to is the work that he's done. Will the work that he's done last? He's not worried that he doesn't understand the gospel. He's worried that the Judaizers may even be able to corrupt the rest of the church and that the free grace gospel that he's been preaching may be undermined by those other apostles falling. And he had good reason to be afraid because Peter himself had fallen away from the true grace of the gospel. What it was saying is, I wanted to make sure that this gospel of grace movement that was spreading through the ancient world wasn't going to be upended by this heresy, by this false teaching that the Judaizers were spreading. But he was nervous about going up there. He was nervous about going up there. Why? Why? Well... It's the only time we know of when Peter, James, John, and Paul all met face to face. It was a huge moment. It's a huge moment in the history of the church because if the Jewish apostles in Jerusalem said, Paul, you're wrong, 
the Judaizers are right, it would have been devastating. Devastating for the early church and for the spread of Christianity. There's not many Jewish people in this room, I dare say. Maybe a few of you, Jewish ethnicity. But most of us are not. The gospel spreading to people who weren't Jewish was at stake. And it really mattered. The stakes were huge. It would have done serious damage to the work of spreading the gospel. And again, if you read the book of Acts and you read the gospels very carefully, you realize it was a very difficult thing for the early apostles to believe that Gentiles could be welcomed in on the same footing as the Jews. Do you remember how God finally convinced Peter? Anybody remember the story? It's in Acts chapter 8 and 9 and 10. This is the story of Peter basically gets a vision of a, of a big sheet with different kinds of animals, clean and unclean, on it. God has to give him a special vision. And three times in the vision tells Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter protests. I can't kill. I can't eat those things. Jews don't eat those things. Three times. Finally, he, he says, okay. And then he goes and he preaches the gospel to this Gentile guy named Cornelius. And the gospel comes to them. The Gentiles, they hear it. They get converted. The Spirit falls on them, and then Peter has to go back to Jerusalem and tell the story. And everybody's really suspicious about this whole thing. It was a difficult thing. And even with that intense experience that Peter had, still, years later, he wouldn't eat with Gentiles anymore because he wondered if it was really okay. So it really was a difficult thing because it's always a difficult thing to believe that grace is enough. And that you don't need to do more than that. Why does this matter? And why does it matter today? Why, why did we tell this story? Why did God even put this in the Bible? The reason is this. Cultural matters are still confusing for people. And still trip up people all the time. The culture you were raised in brings all kinds of assumptions. But God calls us to be very careful that we don't elevate cultural expressions to being equated with the gospel itself. And all I can tell you is, while there there is a, a kind of a real genius and a real glorious story of how Christianity has spread all over the world through various cultures and languages, and if certainly the, the, the Bible proclaims a glorious future of people from every race, tribe, tongue, and nation. But the fact is, there are many, many terrible examples of how Christians have sought to make other people adopt their cultural practices to be fully pleasing to God. And it's not an easy thing to tease out sometimes. It's not. I mean, I remember Wendy and I, we took our kids and lived in the south of France for two months. You might say, man, that was suffering for Jesus. And there were some great things about it. But there was also, you know, other things about it that were difficult. If you've ever lived in another culture like that, I remember when we first got there, you know, the French uh, or the uh, American missionary who's been there in France forever, you know, asking our interns, what do you think about topless, you know, beaches? Is that cultural? What do you think? Some of these questions are like, oh, I don't know. What I, is that cultural? Is it not? I'm not going to tell you what I think about that. Other than to say there are a lot of cultural expressions 
that are different in different places and different times. Do you know the early church fathers almost unanimously thought that instruments were not appropriate in Christian worship? I don't know very many people that think that today. There are some, and we tend to think that they're kind of the minority report, right? So if you don't believe that it's wrong to use instruments in worship, what you're saying is that the early church got that wrong. I think they did get it wrong. I do, based on the Bible. But I'm saying these are not easy issues, and they are important issues. They're important issues. You know, we do this, this music where we put these old hymns to new music, and I have to tell you, I sometimes get really nasty letters from people. And some of y'all went to that missions conference, the Global Missions Conference, back in the fall, and you heard some of the arguments that I got in with people about that, right? I had one woman come up to me, and she was just very concerned that we were singing hymns, which send all the glory, give all the glory to God, to music that belongs in a nightclub. And we had to sit there and talk about this and talk about assumptions about culture. But here's what matters. It is heresy to say that there's only one pure cultural expression of the gospel. And the letter of the Galatians says that it's heresy to teach people that there's one pure cultural expression of the gospel. In some ways, it would be easier. You'd know what to wear, what to eat, where to live, maybe what you could do for a living. But Christianity isn't like that. You have to, you have to wrestle with these things and with the faith and with where God has put you. And it's not easy. These are questions that good Christian people disagree about all the time. But the vital thing for you to know is that there is, there is a difference between the gospel and the cultural expression of it. Now, when I get these kind of letters, and sometimes I have these kind of arguments with people about musical style, what's, what's interesting is, you know, in the, the Presbyterian Church in America, conservative Presbyterian denomination, that's who I'm ordained in that denomination, okay? It's, uh, we have about 1,500 pastors, and about, I'm not sure the latest count, a few years ago I knew there was about 35 or 40 African-American pastors. It's a very white denomination, I have to tell you. Uh, but I'm friends with a lot of those African-American guys, you know, went to seminary with some of them, just become friends over the years. And um, it's interesting, when I was having one of these very public discussions uh, on a website bulletin board one time about rock music and whether it was appropriate in worship or not, I would get emails, private emails from some of my African-American pastor friends saying, fight this fight, because there is definitely a connection between a bunch of white pastors who think that you can't do rock and roll and music and the reason that African-Americans don't feel very welcome in our denomination. Because whether these guys realize it or not, the arguments they're making about rock and roll are really arguments where they're arguing that there really is one pure cultural expression of the gospel musically and it happened 300 years ago and we should just keep singing that over and over and over again. But at some point that begins to deny the God of the gospel, who longs to see people from every race, tribe, tongue, and nation glorify him. And the picture in the book of Revelation is the kings of all the earth bring their splendor into the holy city. It's not we all sing the same songs in the same language. That's not the picture. And Galatians helps us understand why Christianity has that hope. Because God has not said, when you become a Christian, you have to become this culture or that culture. 
And so the question is, you know, why would I make African-American, you know, students sing like 17th century Dutch people? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you pick that culture versus this culture? But these are complicated issues, but they're issues that matter. Paul goes so far here to say that these people were coming in to spy out our freedom in Christ, and he had to oppose them for the sake of the gospel. So that you're like, okay, this isn't just peripheral. I mean, when I talk about this, I feel like maybe you're thinking, does this really matter very much? It does matter very much. Because if you say that there's only one pure cultural expression of the gospel, what you're saying is God only cares about one culture. And that he'll only love you if you adopt that culture. Now that matters. It's like saying you have to clean yourself up before God will marry you. You've got to clean yourself up in a particular way. You have to wear a particular cultural dress and eat particular cultural foods or God's really not happy with you. And that is a denial of the gospel. And I don't care what it is that you think you can add. They may even be really good things, good ideas. But if you think that they're required for God's grace to come to you, then you've denied the gospel. You have to be so careful. We have to be so careful about that. Let me, let me go to this last point. Paul says that he has to set the record straight with regard to who really preaches the gospel. Look at verse uh, 6 here. He says, and those, from whose, those who seem to be influential. He's basically saying, you know, it's interesting. He doesn't want to say they're more important but everybody regards Peter and James and John as more important. So it's kind of, it's almost convoluted a little the way he writes it. But he's saying, look, those reported to be pillars, those that seem influential, though they're not really influential, they're just guys like me, is what he's saying. But I had to lay my gospel before them, right? And it says, they seem, those who seemed influential added nothing to me. That's a very significant phrase. You could tell there's sort of triumph behind him. He's, he's not saying, I got it right. Glory to me. He's saying, no, they agreed. We all agreed that the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. Now, I know Tullian's written a book about that now, but this is where it comes from. These other apostles added nothing to my gospel. And that's, the, see, this is the way the gospel gets distorted. Usually, it's by adding, not by subtracting. It's by adding things to the gospel. And sometimes, you have to oppose people who are adding things to the gospel. I love the story. There's this guy, Archibald Alexander, who was the first president of Princeton Seminary. And he was a guy that did not drink alcohol. Didn't enjoy alcohol, just didn't drink it, didn't think he needed to drink it. Except for one occasion... Or one thing, he, would, he, he kept a wet bar, kept alcohol at his house, whiskey and glasses and all that, but he kept it hidden in a closet. The only time he'd bring it out is if there was somebody who came to his house who made a big deal about how Christians weren't allowed to drink alcohol, and then he would break it out and offer them a drink. <laughs> he, liked, he was kind of an ordinary guy. But do you understand what he's saying is, look, I don't need to drink alcohol. I don't even particularly like alcohol. But if there's somebody who comes along who says, for me to be a good Christian, I have to abstain from alcohol, well, then I need to oppose them to their face. Because it's not just about alcohol. Alcohol doesn't matter one way or the other with regard to whether Jesus can love you. 
But it matters if you go around teaching people, it matters. And if you put it on par with what Jesus did on the cross. And if you teach people that unless they get this right and live right in this way, they can't be loved by God, well, then it matters, and then they need to be opposed to their face, right? And that gets us to this thing about Titus. Here's the interesting thing. Titus was not Jewish. He was Greek. He was Gentile. And Paul says, when I brought him with me to Jerusalem, those other apostles didn't make him get circumcised. Now, being circumcised as an adult male is not a pleasant experience, but Paul was not thrilled just that Titus didn't have to go through that experience for his own comfort, but because it showed that the apostles did not think that Gentiles needed to be circumcised. But then it's interesting, Timothy does get circumcised. So what's up with that? Well, Timothy was Jewish. And as a Jewish boy, he had never been circumcised. And so Paul said, since that is your culture, you should live appropriately in that culture so as not to be a stumbling block. It's pretty fascinating. And we're going to talk more about Christian freedom when we get into later chapters in Galatians. The hard thing about preaching Galatians is little things get picked up, but then there's better places later to talk about them. So I'm not going to talk all about Christian freedom, but it's worth noting here that Titus was not circumcised, Timothy was, and Paul is being consistent with his gospel in doing that because nobody forced anybody to be circumcised so that they could be truly pleasing to God. Timothy was circumcised so that he wouldn't be a stumbling block to other Jews. But it was important for Paul that you don't ask people or tell people they need to do this to be fully pleasing to God. And that's what we, that's what we kind of close here tonight. Because, you know, even an apostle like Peter can fall away from the free grace of the gospel and thinking that he needs to earn God's favor. And I would just say this. I don't care how long you've been hanging around with Christians, how long you've been a Christian. Every one of us, every one of us feels bad about things that we're doing or not doing and wonders how God could possibly love us. I know it. It's hard to believe that God's grace is enough. But as a minister of the gospel, I say to you, Jesus plus nothing is the gospel. Jesus plus nothing. God gets all the verbs. God does the saving. God does the calling. God does the revealing. Jesus did all the dying. You don't have to add anything to it. Believe on the Lord Jesus. That's it. But it's so hard to do because we just always want to kind of cover our bets and try to, try to make sure that we've done everything and then sort of use Jesus to make up what's missing. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus did everything, did everything to make God smile at you forever. And everything that would make God want to turn his face from you, Jesus took on the cross and it was dealt with. That's the truth of the gospel. You don't have to clean up for Jesus to marry you. You don't have to wear just the right dress for Jesus to want to stay married to you. Jesus loves sinners while they're still sinners. 
And he changes them. Sure, he changes them. But he doesn't make them perfect. And he still loves them. Because of his grace. Not because of anything we can do, either before or after we get converted. If that's not the gospel you believe, pray that God would make it convincing to your heart. Because it's the only gospel there is. Let's pray.